Uh, good evening and welcome to our Welcome to Washington panel this evening. My name is Roger Custer. I'm Executive Director at America's Future Foundation. And uh, those of you who might not know, America's Future Foundation is the nation's premier network of liberty-minded young professional leaders, serving as the next step for libertarians and conservatives who are interested in continuing their activism, learning the ideas, and gaining the skills to become lifelong effective advocates for liberty here in Washington, D.C., and in 17 cities around the country. So we invite you to become involved in our skills training programs, networking programs, and other programs uh, here in D.C. and in cities throughout the country. And if there is not an AF chapter in your city, we invite you to start one as a great opportunity to build your network and your skills early in your career. So please visit americasfuture.org to learn more, or you can speak with uh, my colleagues who are in the front here. The Welcome to Washington is a program that we do three times per year to welcome you to Washington, to provide you uh, with a panel of experts, uh, people who've made their way in various fields in Washington and have found out how to successfully network and work with others in order to advance liberty in their various fields. Uh, so we have a distinguished panel uh, this evening. I'd like to introduce them first, and then they'll give remarks for five to seven minutes each before we have a Q&A time. So on my right, on your left, uh, would be Laurel Buckley. She is the Director of Development and Midwest Relations at the American Coun Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. Uh, she also serves as an America's Future Foundation ambassador, which means that she has been hand-selected to help America's Future Foundation grow and fill gaps to develop professional skills. So we appreciate her service there, and she's also a longtime member. And she's a graduate of the George Washington University. Next on the panel will be Maddie Dupler, who is Coalition's Director at the House Republican Conference. Uh, she was formerly with the Americans for Tax Reform and a graduate of the University of Wisconsin. Next we'll have Dr. Emily Eakins, a research fellow at Cato, uh, formerly ran the Reason Root Poll, which some of you may be familiar with, uh, widely published on polling and voter patterns, and a PhD and MA from the University of California, Los Angeles. And last but not least will be Stephanie Slade, who is the uh, deputy managing editor of Reason Magazine. And uh, she is a, also working part-time for AF as our writing programs manager, where she manages the Writing Fellows Program, to which we invite you to apply. Uh, she's working with a group of young writers who are looking to get published and hone their writing skills uh, to advance liberty. So she'll maybe say more about that later. And she is a graduate of the University of Florida. So to kick off our panel, Laurel. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming. Welcome. Um, so I'm here to talk about development, which um, being a good fundraiser is a lot like trying to lose weight. Um, you want to find like a quick fix. Everyone promises a silver bullet, but really the best way to do it is just diet and exercise. And that's kind of like fundraising. You just have to get down to the basics, build relationships with people, and you know, make the cold calls and go forward with it. Um, I do strongly encourage every single person to develop some kind of skill or experience in fundraising. Obviously, I have my bias. Um, but no matter what you do, you're going to have to have that knowledge, whether you want to work in a nonprofit, doing policy work, um, or if you want to be a politician. You have to ask people for money. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise, surprise. Um, or, I mean, even if you want to go into the private sector, uh, learning how to build relationships with people to a point where they give you their money is a very good skill to have. Um, I've spent several years learning um, how to be a good fundraiser from a lot of people who have more experience and are a lot smarter than me. So I'm just going to take some of their advice and pretend it's my own. So disclaimer there. Um, like I said, development is all about relationship building. Um, whether you're building those relationships face-to-face -face or through the mail or through phone calls, it's all about developing a relationship where people trust you. Um, and you have to remember, you're not dealing with nameless, faceless individuals. You're dealing with actual human beings. It's really easy to you know, send out 10,000 pieces in the mail and just say, like, OK, now where's all my money? They're people. They're humans. So make sure that you're giving that personal touch. Um, 
I started fundraising in the direct mail field and someone, when I first started, gave me the advice to always act as if you're writing your letter to one person. The individual who told me that actually had a photo of his coworker's grandmother that he would post up on his computer. Um, and he'd be like, oh, I'm writing to Trudy today. And it's just like you need to act as if you're talking to one person, because that will come through in your writing. Or you know, if you're talking on the phone with someone, it's going to come through. Act as if that's the only phone call you have to make, even if you have 20 afterwards. Um, the great thing about a career in development is that everyone is looking for that skill. So you'll have plenty of job opportunities and job growth. But more than that, you'll have opportunities for job development, which I strongly encourage you would go after. Um, there are free webinars. There's publications, materials. AF every month does cultivation crews where they get individuals together with experts um, to talk about fundraising. So it's one of those skills that you can always keep growing and always keep learning, and I strongly encourage that. Um, a little piece of advice I would give, um, as you develop your career in fundraising, it's really important to track who's a good person to take advice from and who's not a good person to take advice from. You're going to have a lot of volunteers and board members, CEOs, who will tell you like, oh no, people aren't going to give to that. Nobody wants that. They're wrong. <laughs> unless they have a track record, unless they've tested it, you can't just assume. I mean, I, like I said, started in direct mail. I've heard from several individuals who said, well, no one's going to donate if you write a 10-page letter. I wouldn't read a 10-page letter, and I wouldn't donate to that. And my response is simple. It's just, well, do you normally give to direct mail? And when they say no, it's very obvious. Well, you're not the type of person I'm looking to reach anyway. You want donors. Um, so sometimes you have to just suck it up and say, OK, I'll take your advice, but let's test it. What you want and what I think would work. Test, 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 because when it comes back, that's a great thing about fundraising, is everything is trackable. Um, and we'll talk later. Sounds like you're really into the math field, so mm -hmm. I am not a, anywhere close to that. <laughs> but I really like numbers, and it's really great that you can be able to track everything you do. Um, for those of you who aren't interested in the fundraising field, um, I put together a few broad um, pieces of advice for anyone, whether you're an intern or a first-time staffer. Um, the first thing I would say, just as you develop your career, um, everyone wants you to be happy and be a success. Um, if you walk into a career and maybe it's you know your first job or an internship, if you're not happy with it, talk to your supervisor. Figure out what the situation is. I mean, they don't want you to be upset or bummed out every time you walk into the office. So definitely uh, work with them and find out what, what can you do to make yourself a success. Um, I come from the nonprofit world, um, a lot of smaller nonprofits, where we rely heavily on interns or volunteers. And if you're not there to do it, no one else will. Um, it's really hard to get you know, everybody in line doing the same thing. So um, when you walk in, if, I don't know how many of you are interns or first-time staffers, but your work is critical to making sure that all the wheels run on time. So don't ever think that anything is beneath you or not good, because you have no idea how valuable that work is. Um, then the one thing I'd just say is, um, no matter what you're doing, um, people will take notice. Uh, don't ever think that, I, so my career, like I said, is in fundraising. So there's a lot of data entry. There's a lot of um, data filing. But that, all the little stuff adds up. And I've grown very quickly in my career by having an attitude where nothing is 
is beneath me or nothing is, isn't good enough. So you have to have that kind of initiative to go forward. And when you have that, people notice and that'll really, really help you develop in your career. With that, uh, thank you very much, Roger, for putting this together. It's great to see so many folks who are here and interested in what their next steps can be uh, in Washington, D.C. This kind of enthusiasm is really important if you're working on our side of politics. Uh, I, I refer to it as the center-right, but I don't know if we have closet libertarians or we can actually be libertarians here. I'm on the Hill now, so I'm supposed to be a quote-unquote Republican, so I'm never quite sure how to refer to myself. Uh, but as Roger said, I came from Americans for Tax Reform. If you're not familiar with that group, it is Grover Norquist's group. They are well known for their Taxpayer Protection Pledge, which commits politicians running for office at the state and federal level to just simply commit to not raising taxes. Uh, so pretty straightforward charter, uh, but my job there was anything but straightforward. So I'll talk a little bit about what I do now, kind of what I did there and how I, how I got to the job that I'm doing now. Um, but kind of as Laurel mentioned, there's really no, there's no silver bullet in development. There's no silver bullet in what you do here um, or in what you want to do in the future. But that's a good thing. That's the one secret is that I think being on the center right, being a libertarian, being someone who believes that free market, uh, uh, um, I guess classical liberal ideas work is that there is no one-size-fits-all prescription, no one policy, no one solution for any of us. And while we preach that, and I think that's the policy that we really promote on the Hill, that's something that I have found to be true as kind of an individual philosophy, trying to find my way career-wise and what I want to do uh, here in Washington. So as I mentioned, I started out in, uh, at Americans for Tax Reform. I moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, almost seven years ago now at the advent of the Obama administration, so no one was hiring Republicans uh, when I moved here. Uh, and uh, I came here from the University of Wisconsin, which if you're not familiar with uh, the University of Wisconsin, it's in Madison, Wisconsin. And unfortunately, our governor just decided that he wasn't going to be the leader of this great nation and decided to go back to be governor recently. Uh, but he did have the one line that is repeated often in Madison, which is that it's 75 miles of idealism surrounded by reality. And that's very much true of Madison. Uh, it's really a, it's a, a liberal outside of the rest of the country, uh, or excuse me, the rest of the state. Uh, but being there prepared me well for the battles that I would fight here. You know, folks were really surprised that I wanted to move to DC given the wave election Democrats had just had. Uh, in 2008, and you know, when I got here, I found it to be quite a bit more friendly than what I'd been experiencing in the academic uh, liberal nirvana of Madison. Uh, so I have enjoyed my time here. I started working in Americans for Tax Reform as an intern, actually. Uh, I was a budget intern there, working for uh, one of the federal affairs managers who's focused solely on spending, uh, transparency, um, and fiscal issues. Uh, so when she decided to leave, they hired me on as a full-time staffer. So I can't emphasize enough what Laura was saying about how no task too small, no job too insignificant. That truly is the most critical component of being successful and trying to get your foot in the door somewhere. Uh, every intern, every associate I've ever hired or recommended for another job, someone who is enthusiastic, who is hardworking, who is committed to the cause, is always going to win out over someone who has a skill set uh, that might be more advanced. Because you can teach skills, you can gain experience, but you can't really put into, uh, you can't put spirit into a worker. So that's really, I think, um, a common theme from folks that I've seen, you know, as I'm trying to mentor folks and help them, help them uh, 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 foster, you know, their careers. That's something that I think is a critical component of being successful here and probably anywhere else. But more so in Washington, D.C., I think, than anywhere else, you really can chart your own course. Uh, so when I was hired at ATR, I was hired to do federal budget spending issues. Uh, and when I came on as a full-time staffer, that was in uh, 2010 going into 2011, when the, sh the political shift was becoming apparent in Republican politics. No longer was there a simple, Republicans for a while had been kind of a one-trick pony, like no more taxes. Yeah, smaller government, but we don't really mean it when it comes to some things. You know, like we we're okay with a bigger defense. We're okay with bigger things we care about. Um, and that was changing, you know, with Obamacare, with uh, the Nancy, Re Nancy Pelosi, Harry Reid, uh, Barack Obama spending binge, Americans were fed up. And that 
that, and they found a home in the Republican Party for folks who wanted to change that. So I was, uh, I was in a position where I was able to see those signals, see that writing on the wall, and start uh, fostering a portfolio at ATR that focused on those issues and really spoke to the fact that we had a base that was changing. So one of the things that I would encourage you to do is really look for where the where there are where there's need, where there are needs that aren't being met, because that's what I did. That turned out to be a very uh, a very helpful move for me was to think a little bit bigger about what it was I was doing. I was working for this great organization that was known very well known for what it had done on tax policy, but tax policy wasn't going to be the only thing that was important in the political environment. So what more could we do? That was the question I was asking myself. And in studying the landscape, I was able to come up with a job that I wasn't currently doing but wanted to do. So this is also something that I tell a lot of young folks who are coming into Washington, D.C., don't do the job you were hired to do, do the, job, do the job you want to do. Um, and I don't say that to be glib. I don't mean to be flippant. And I'm not telling you to completely ignore what your boss would like you to do. What I'm saying is that the job you want to do might not exist. But there is certainly the opportunity to do it if you can look for it. Uh, so like I said, being in a position where I was working for a tax group but wanted to do more on budget policy because there was a vacuum there, uh, those kinds of opportunities exist across the spectrum, whether you're interested in development, journalism, you know, anything um, has the opportunity available for, it, for you if you're willing to look for it. So de- being able to identify what it is you want to do sometimes starts with you being able to identify what you're good at. Um, and that doesn't mean that you can't try to challenge yourself in spheres that you don't have as much experience. But I would also offer that it is a very helpful exercise to kind of stay, take stock of yourself, take stock of your talents, of your experience, and where those kinds of uh, where those kinds of characteristics are helpful. Being able to identify for yourself what you're good at and what gives you confidence and what gives you a good sense of how, what kind of worker you are really does help inform kind of where you would like to go in your career as well. These are complementary. Um, uh, exercises. They're not supposed to be combative. It's not, suppo- it's not supposed to be an exhaustive exercise where you say, well, I'm not good at writing, so I can never go into communications. No, you should be thinking critically about the things that you've done before and the things you want to do in the future. And that really does start with uh, being able to identify what you're happy with um, doing now. So I encourage you all, go home, Start writing about yourself. Look at a piece of paper and think, okay, what are the things that I do well? It is. It sounds a little bit, uh, a little bit pedantic and like a little tedious, uh, but it is. It's actually a very helpful exercise, and I think that most folks, once they do that, even surprise themselves, um, because I think a lot of times too, coming out of different colleges, different academic environments, we're told, you know, you have to get a political science degree. And if you have a political science degree, you have to go into policy. And if you go into policy, you can do X, Y, and Z in Washington. Uh, That is less and less the case here. And it certainly doesn't have to be the case for you. Uh, at ATR, one of the greatest things that I was also able to do was to meld a portfolio that doesn't really, that can't really be explained. What I did there was I was hired as a policy staffer, but after recognizing the fact that the policy on the budget side was lacking, I was able to uh, adopt more of a communication strategy with that as well. So I started doing um, a lot of our communications on those policy issues. Uh, so all of a sudden, I was wearing two hats. I was wearing a policy hat where I was crunching numbers, going through bills, briefing my boss on what was coming to the floor that week, but also going out and be, doing external work, you know, going on TV, going on radio, explaining the group's positions, discussing why certain things were happening in Washington that, you know, we did or did not uh, agree with. Um, and beyond that, then, there is a coalitions aspect, which is what led me to my job now. Uh, now, uh, as was discussed, I'm the coalitions director at the House Republican Conference, which is a pretty amorphous-sounding job title and description of what I do in general. Uh, and that's the greatest thing about my job, is that it really is what I make of it. The, um, the job that I really was hired to do, to put it the most succinctly, is to try and dis- uh, try and um, work with stakeholders and interested parties to make sure that we can have successful legislative strategies. Now, of course, what does that mean? That sounds like a lot of political jargon as well. Really, what I'm trying to do is build an echo chamber for what we want to accomplish on the Hill to make sure that not only are bills getting passed that we would like to get passed, but that the message and the uh, narrative we're trying to construct bypassing that legislation is effective and is is actually uh, uh, resonating 
with the people we want to reach. So the House Republican Conference is the fourth most powerful leadership position in the House of Representatives. Go speaker, leader, whip, House Republican Conference. And we're the folks who are in charge of really making sure that everything we're doing legislatively, everything that's coming to the floor, uh, has a, a strong um, and robust messaging technique along with it. So a lot of the stuff that you see, if you see members of Congress on, um, on TV, hear them on radio, see them publishing op-eds, we have a part in organizing all of that. But it is a much broader strategy than that, because as Laura was talking about, the ability to build relationships is also a critical skill that you can foster. And it's also an easy one, too, to really work with. Um, I think coming into Washington, D.C., where you might not know what you want to do, the world seems like a really big place because you have all these really great opportunities. Uh, we also have a lot of really great chances for you to be able to um, cultivate that skill, which I think opens up a lot of other doors. So learning how to network, learning how to build relationships, learning how to really have an authentic connection with people uh, is something that there is a, there's, a, uh, I think, a high premium pace, placed on that skill here. Uh, but great organizations like AF, like Cato, that are very invested in helping you cultivate those skills give you the opportunity to really kind of start there. Uh, start by building that portfolio, that repertoire for yourself, and that can open a ton of new doors. Um, how I made the transition from Americans for Tax Reform to the Hill was a series of making new relationships, making connections. So the other piece of advice that I always give folks is to never disregard an opportunity to meet new people. Uh, and the greatest thing, I think, about working in this center-right world is that we're so heavily invested in those kinds of opportunities, you'll never be lacking for one. Uh, there's always a happy hour to attend uh, to network. There's always an opportunity to go see a, a speaker or to attend an, a, an event um, to talk to any number of cool people who cycle through this town. I mean, we had the Pope in town today, for crying out loud. You know, there's always something that's happening in Washington, D.C. that's not going to be happening elsewhere in this country, and I encourage you to take advantage of that. You know, there are millions of websites dedicated to just listing all the cool free events that happen every, um, every night in D.C., and those are fantastic opportunities to meet people who you otherwise wouldn't be sitting next to at events that are organized by Cato or every day at your intern lunch um, at Heritage or wherever it is you find yourself. So I really encourage you to put yourselves out there. It's kind of scary. It's kind of weird to think, oh my god, I'm going to go sign up for this event where I know no one and barely even know the topic that's being discussed. But it's a really great opportunity to meet people, and you never know what that relationship will provide for you. Um, some of the greatest working relationships I have now have been completely by chance. They've been from uh, being seated next to someone at a dinner, running into a friend of a friend who made the introduction that you know we ended up uh, going and grabbing dinner sometime, and you know, who knew we had all these things in common? Uh, because the, that's the other thing you will quickly learn about Washington D.C. is it's a much smaller town than it seems. So you're always going to know someone who knows someone. So it's good to be that person who's always try, who's always making a connection, trying to make a genuine and authentic effort to really get to know people. And that I think probably for all of us up here, no matter what we're doing in D.C., is a really uh, important um, important skill. To, uh, to try and um, try and foster for yourself. Uh, so beyond that, I would say, um, you know, I'll, I'll answer questions later about being on the Hill, but making the transition from being in the advocacy world to being on the Hill has been a really interesting one. And again, I kind of come back to uh, contrasting it with what conservatives, libertarians, free market thinkers do with what liberals, Democrats, those guys do. Because I'll talk to like my Democrat friends, and I have a lot of Democrat friends. You know, Some people are surprised by that. But bipartisanship does live here. It might not be uh, broadcast by our members. But for those of us in the trenches, I think it's still, it's still a commodity that we trade in. Uh, but I'll talk to my Democrat friends, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, it wasn't that different going like from the outside to the inside. And I'll think, oh, my goodness, it is worlds different. It's worlds different. Uh, when you're a conservative, Republican, free market thinker, again, pick any one of those to, to describe yourself, um, it's, it's an interesting transition to make because you're going from working in advocacy, having either one single position for which you are advocating or maybe a portfolio, but all pretty much ideologically driven, to working with a conference of folks, and in our case, a 247-person wide conference um, of different, uh, different demands, different constituencies, and certainly different personalities. Uh, so it's been a very rewarding and interesting experience being on the Hill, but it has been very different. So and I, I, I 
touch on that just to say that there are still, uh, I think, common themes between not only what the four of us probably do and we'll say here tonight, but between the work I did in the advocacy world and the work I did on the, uh, the work that I'm doing now on the hillside, which is, again, trying to identify where there's a need. Uh, trying to identify what work I can do that is challenging to myself, but also plays to my strengths, and then going for it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, there's nothing that's more valuable than a little hustle. And once you find something or recognize what it is you want to do, being dedicated to that cause and really pursuing it will give you a lot more satisfaction than the job title or the paycheck or whatever else it is that seems to be a quantifiable currency for what you're doing. Um, being happy and excited about what you're doing every day uh, is really one of the most rewarding things about working in Washington. So with that, I'll turn it back to you. Maddie? I guess I'll turn it over to Emily. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Wow, it sounds like you have a very interesting job. It's really interesting. <laughs> it does sound interesting. It's exciting. Um, so I come from the policy world. I work here at the Cato Institute upstairs, um, and I work in public opinion research and polling. And so some of the advice that we have, you know, might be somewhat specific to kind of our own paths. We all will take our own paths, but I'm hoping that some of the things that I've learned in my own experiences could be useful. Um, and so the, the way I thought I would do it was just tell you about my story so far. Um, sometimes I remember things more when I kind of tell it in a story and kind of think about, well, what did I learn from that? Um, so I actually, in the middle of my PhD program, I came here to Cato as a graduate student intern. And I thought I was going to spend the summer learning about monetary policy, even though that is, I, I do nothing in that field at all. I do public opinion research. But I thought it would be kind of a fun detour. Um, so I came to work for the monetary policy guy here at Cato. Um, very nice. Um, he had me photocopy newspapers. <laughs> and um, that was boring. And um, I wanted to do more than that. Um, and so I introduced myself to one of his colleagues and just said, he didn't have another intern. So I said, hi, I'm your intern. Uh, what, you know? How, can I help you with X, Y, or Z? Um, and we ended up uh, forming a great friendship, and we wrote a paper together that, well, it took longer than that summer, but we ended up writing a paper together. He said it was the only person he's ever actually written something with. Um, and it all just be, was because I didn't want to photocopy newspapers only. I mean, I did photocopy the newspapers, because I had to do that, um, but that was boring, and so I looked for other things to do that were useful to people. Um, I heard about another scholar here that was doing work that was a little bit more relevant to mine. Um, so I went to a panel that he was speaking at at the Urban Institute, and I went and introduced myself to him. Um, and he now happens to be my boss here at Cato. Um, we ended up forming a great relationship, great working relationship, and we stayed in touch over five years. Um, and I joined, in, uh, I joined Cato in March, and so you know during that period of time, we maintained that relationship. Um, and I also introduced my, it shows kind of how naive I was, I guess, but I introduced myself to um, one of the vice presidents here at Cato, and I mispronounced his name, and um, <laughs> this is David Boaz, <laughs> David Boaz, and um, I told, well, I had read something that he had written, and I had learned this new statistical method that I thought he would find really interesting. Um, so we sit down with my computer, and I start showing him this method that would help answer a question that he posed in one of his own books. Um, and he really liked it, but he said, I do not know what you're doing, so I, I can't really evaluate this. Um, but I want you to meet um, David Kirby. Um, David Kirby is actually now here at Cato as well. Um, but he was working over at the Institute for Humane Studies, and he says, you know, he understands statistics. Go talk to him. And we have lunch. It's the first time I, so I've met a lot of people here. I've mentioned a lot of introductions. Um, we sit down, we have lunch, and we start... Um, we come up with this new idea for a new research project. The Tea Party movement was um, starting. It was all these protests were going on all around the country, and no one really knew what to make of it. Um, so we decided to get some data, crunch the numbers, and um, write a paper about it, which we did. Um, but because of that, um, he introduced me to someone else, um, named Brendan Steinhauser, who was at FreedomWorks at the time. And Around that time, there was this big protest on 9-12. I don't know if you, remember, uh, if you saw this in the news, but there were tons of Tea Partiers all over Washington, D.C. on 9-12, um, 2010. And I was in my pajamas, and I took my phone, and I went to the Tea Party event. And I look around, and I remember how the media was saying, 
that the Tea Party had lots of racist signs. So I thought, well, one way to test that is if I take a picture of every sign and then just quantify it at the end of the day and see what I find. Um, and I mean, I, it was so ad hoc. Um, so I do this analysis of Tea Party signs. And I didn't really know what to make of it. I didn't really think it was that big of a deal. Um, and it's really not. But um, I mentioned it to um, one of the other scholars here at Cato. And he says, oh, that's interesting. You should tell someone about that. And I thought, I kind of doubted myself. I thought, no, no one will find this interesting. But this person that David Kirby introduced me to at FreedomWorks, he thought it was really interesting. And he says, you need to talk to someone at the Washington Post. Here's her email. Email her now. So I email her, and she ends up writing a big story on it. Um, you know, Tea Party Signs by the Numbers, it was like the first quantitative study of Tea Party Signs. And again, I don't think this is like that interesting. But for some reason, since so many people were talking about racist signs of the Tea Party, um, it was a big deal at the time. And so I ended up doing a ton of media. It was my first experience ever doing media. Um, and as a result, you know, Cato took me, you know, they saw me more than just an intern. Um, they saw me as someone that took um, initiative, um, and it was kind of a surprise to me as well. Um, and so when we parted ways at the end of the internship, um, they asked if I would be an affiliated research fellow, um, not someone full-time, but just an affiliated fellow. And so you know, over the past few years, I've maintained that and um, wrote you know, various papers, op-eds on the side, um, in addition to my other work. Um, but at the end of the summer, um, because of that, um, the Reason Foundation, where uh, Stephanie is, lo uh, is located at, um, they were looking to start a new project of national, where they were going to field national public opinion polls, and they needed um, a polling director. Um, and because I had introduced myself to uh, David Bowes, who I mispronounce as Boaz, um, he sent me an email and said, I think you should apply for this, and I'll recommend you myself to them. Um, and so I ended up taking that position. And while I was working on my dissertation, um, I worked full time as the polling director for Reason. I wouldn't recommend doing both at the same time. It was horribly <laughs> miserable. Um, but um, it did, it, it opened a lot of doors and opened my eyes to the fact that I didn't want to do academics. I wanted to do policy. I wanted to come back to DC. And so when I finished my dissertation, I came back. Um, so that's kind of my story of how I ended up coming back to Cato. Um, when I finished my PhD, I started here full time um, to start a new public opinion research project. Um, and so I was kind of going through those things, and I was looking at, well, what, what stands out? What are some of the common threads? And I noticed that introducing myself to people that I didn't know, I'll, you know, while it's always uncomfortable, um, it really paid off. And um, Maddie, you were talking about luck. Totally agree with that. Some of it is luck. Um, but I feel like um, if you add up the times where you put yourself in a situation where you can get lucky, um, you make it more likely that you can meet someone that you know either you could help them or they could help you, or you get a, a great friendship out of it. Obviously, you know you don't just want to have relationships <laughs> for superficial reasons, but it is kind of amazing how when you meet people, um, kind of the amazing like, doors that can open. Um, and in almost all these situations, I found something that they were interested in. I would go, I would, you know, have read something that they had already had written um, and tried to find something that they cared about to talk to them. And it actually makes it easier. I hate networking for the sake of networking. I just, I hate it. I like meeting people. I like making friends. But I hate just like straight up just networking sessions. I would rather have like, you know, find something that that person cares about and go talk to them about that. And it seems just, just so much more authentic and natural. And I actually, that's how I've kind of gotten over my fear of networking. Um, the other thing was, um, this is a lot like what, what Maddie was saying, is um, start new projects. Do projects even if that's not what you were assigned to. I just started doing things that I felt interested in, in addition to my tasks. So I didn't let the other things go. I did the things I was supposed to do. And then I tried to find other things that I thought would be useful. Um, and that's you know easy enough. What I actually found to be more challenging was the follow through. I started all of these papers um, with various people here at Cato when I started, but to finish all of those papers actually took a lot of time and effort, and it was actually really hard to do. Um, and we all have our strengths and weaknesses, but for me, I've really focused on following through. If I say that I'm going to do something, follow through. And it's amazing how people are so surprised. <laughs> um, so uh, that's something that I really try to focus on. And why I try to be pragmatic um, in the work that I do. Um, 
we have to think about like what other people demand and you know how we how we can produce something that's useful it's great when we can find ways where we can be passionate about it as well um, and I was able to find that um, because of the research that I did with David Kirby on the Tea Party movement I found it really interesting and it actually turned into my dissertation um, and that is a very long endeavor you spend like way too long writing about the very you know the same topic drives all your friends crazy um, but I was I feel really fortunate that I was able to find something that I was passionate about because I interacted with others met new people um, and another thing that was really hard for me to learn I feel like I'm sharing sharing with you all the things I found were hard um, was to really I mean I always respect the advice that people give me um, but to really really take it to heart um, when people give me advice people that were, you know, authority figures, you know, professors, other policy scholars, really taking that advice and um, putting it into my own work. Um, that is where I noticed a huge, a huge result by doing that. Um, and so it's kind of this tricky balance where you have to, or it's important to be innovative and creative and unique, but also to take the advice of other people um, and you know, to not just any advice, obviously, <laughs> but to really consider the advice that people give you, even if you don't understand it. Um, the common errors, I was thinking, um, asking someone for something to do if you're an intern, or if you're a new hire, kind of not sure what project you should work on next. I know that that's kind of um, an easy thing to do, but what I would recommend is try to find something you can do, propose it, ask if that, you know, how do you feel about me doing X? And the answer you might hear is yes, do that. And then you get to do something you're interested in. Or they'll say, actually, I could really use you over here. And then that way, you know, no one's been annoyed. <laughs> um, and um, I think the last thing, I've already said it, is just to follow through. Um, that, I think, is the most important thing. Take, take risks, but then follow through on the things that you say that you will do. Um, so that's my advice. Um, and I'm happy to answer questions on polling and um, policy research after this. Hi, everybody. I'm Stephanie Slade. I, um, I'm an editor at Reason Magazine. Um, and you may have heard that the journalism industry is sort of undergoing a transformation. Uh, if you think that, that that's the case, imagine how I felt coming out of college in 2009. At that moment, like, everybody looked around and said journalism is in free fall. Um, the big flagship newspapers like the New York Times, there were layoffs and buyouts. They were closing down bureaus. Um, a lot of cities that had at one time had two newspapers, maybe a more conservative newspaper and a more liberal newspaper. They were finding they couldn't sustain it anymore. They were either merging or one of them was going out of business. A lot of magazines were going from having a print product to being online only. And so I was graduating from college. I had worked at the newspaper at my school at the University of Florida. I had loved it. I had thought this would be such a cool thing to do for a living. But I looked around and realized, like, man, this, this just should not look pretty. And so uh, I moved up to D.C. I also had a passion for politics, and I had studied economics in college, and so I got a job as a political consultant. I actually did polling. That was my first full-time job, was at a polling firm. And I was working as a political consultant, and that was a lot of fun. Um, but I really still liked to write, and I really had this idea that maybe, uh, maybe someday I might like to find a job in the journalism world. Uh, and so what I did was I started pitching op-eds, and I started writing op-eds for US News and World Report. I built a relationship with the opinion editor there. Um, I went from writing one-off things here and there to writing a couple times a month to writing once every week for him uh, over the course of several years. And uh, eventually, I was, a I was offered a job at Reason Magazine, and that's where I am now. And I actually, I just celebrated my first anniversary there. So um, I did something that I didn't know, I wasn't sure was possible when I, when I came out of college, which was I found a way to get paid to be a writer. Uh, and I, I don't know if anybody here is hoping to maybe do that in the future. Um, but if you are, I wanted to offer some, some advice. One of the things that I noticed is that although the industry, the journalism industry was changing and there were a lot of layoffs and it was pretty scary, um, the, there were also some opportunities that were created from those changes. Uh, one of them is that people, you sort of had the gatekeepers go away. I'm sure you've all heard that phrase a lot in different contexts. But what you had is now anybody could start a blog at any time, right? And if you really knew something about a subject and you were willing to put the time into researching and writing it up and putting it on a blog and maybe 
doing some, some, promotion, some promotional activities to get yourself some followers. You could really become a presence out there without having a publisher, without having, a, you know, having anybody offered you a job at a newspaper or a magazine. And, um, and so there were a lot of people who did that. And what you started to see was the big, the big players, the New York Times and Time Magazine and these institutional players realized that they were getting competition from these bloggers who were doing the work for free and said, well, I want to get those clicks, so why don't I hire them a job and have them do exactly what they're doing it but under my masthead? So you had like an example of this early on was you had Nate Silver who had started this website 538, which started out as an independent blog. It was absorbed, he was sort of brought into the New York Times to be a part of the New York Times, and then it blew up so much that he went out on his own again and is now doing that as, as a career. Um, and you, you have Volokh at Eugene Volokh and Volokh Conspiracy who went to Washington Post. And there's a lot of examples of these people who started blogs who were so good at it that they were posing such a threat to the established players that the established newspapers and magazines brought them in and started paying them to continue doing what they were doing for free anyway. Uh, the other thing that you, you had, ha we've seen happen in recent years is a lot, the, uh, there's the ability now to sort of launch a new publication, uh, the, the, the barriers to entry are a lot, a lot lower now. So an example of that that uh, happened a couple years ago was The Federalist. Ben Dominich, who um, had been in Washington and been a writer for a really long time, said, I think I'm just going to start a web magazine, and I'm going to go and I'm going to get venture capitalists to back it, and I'm going to bring some really good, talented writers in to help me do what I do, and we're going to compete with the big players, and it's going to be web only, um, but we're going to try to produce some thoughtful uh, conservative and libertarian-leaning journalism, and um, and it's he's been very successful. And there are a lot of other examples. There's a lot. There's just sort of this massive marketplace of different outlets now, um, many of which are online only, but they're all producing content and competing for your eyeballs. And so that what that means for you, if you're hoping to maybe make a career out of writing uh, or editing, is there's a lot more buyers now. It used to be that there were like a few major newspapers and a few major, major magazines, and there was, you know, the National Review, and there was the, we the Weekly Standard, and there was the New Republic, and there was Salon, and that was it, right? And now there's like an infinite number of places that you could potentially get published and, and work if this is something that you want to do. Um, how do you get there, though? Uh, I have a few pieces of sort of hopefully concrete advice. If you want to get paid to write, the first thing you got to do is be willing to write for free and write a lot for free. And uh, if you don't have a connection with anyone, if you, if you don't have anywhere, anyone who's willing to publish you right now, start a blog. Uh, if, you, if you can, maybe get together with some friends and start a blog. Find somebody who's already started a blog and ask if they could use a contributor. Um, but you've got to be writing all the time because you can't learn to, you know, the way you learn to write and to get better at writing is, is by writing. And I say this as somebody who always was a good writer and did not know how much room I had to improve until I started working at Reason and writing all the time and editing all the time. And I went, wow, I thought I was a great writer. I was writing, I, you know, I was a good writer in college. I was writing for US News for like almost three years. Uh, I was writing those weekly columns for them. And until I got to Reason, I didn't realize like, how, how much room I had to grow. So just, you gotta get out there and you gotta be writing all the time, be willing to do it for free. Maybe after you, if you, know, if you can't get published, in, get op-eds published, find somebody who will publish you at their blog. If you can't find somebody to publish you at their blog, start your own. That's kind of the way, the way this works. And, um, and use social media to, to promote the things you write. The other thing that, that goes with this is it helps to know something. It's one thing to have an opinion and want to share it and be good at stringing words together into sentences, but it's actually much more likely that you will find somebody to pay you for, for that skill set if you have an issue area that you've really spent a lot of time learning about, that you're passionate about, that you read everything that's getting written on that, that you're willing to dig into at a, at a deeper level than everyone else's. Now you're bringing something to, ta to the table besides just an opinion, right, and, and a, the skill of being able to write. Now, now you're bringing knowledge and this, that skill. Um, so write a lot, write for free. Um, once you're at the point where you're ready to start trying to get published, you got to pitch all the time. You got to find who the op-ed or commentary or opinion editors are at all these different places: Washington Examiner, the Washington Times, all, wherever, wherever you think you might have a chance of getting published. Try to build a relationship with those editors and be pitching all the time. It's kind of like applying for jobs in that 
you're not going to hear back from a lot of them. And you're going to get a lot more no's than you get yeses. And you just got to have a very thick skin about that and just say, just keep on going. Keep on pitching, keep on writing, keep on trying. And um, the people who end up being successful are the ones who don't get discouraged, ultimately. Um, in addition to writing a lot and writing, being willing to write, write for free, it, the other the second really big thing you can do to help yourself is read a lot of really good writing. Fiction, nonfiction, read on both sides of the aisle. I read, um, I read Mother, Mother Jones, I read uh, The New Republic, I read all, as much as I possibly can, but I'm trying to get all the sides of the different issues. I'm trying to see how different people are presenting different arguments to their audiences, what works, what doesn't work, what gets traction. Um, read. If you want a, a really rich source of excellent writing material, go look at all the different um, long-form journalism articles that have been nominated for Pulitzer Prizes over the years. And there's, there's list, a list of them that you can see historically which, which pieces were nominated for the Pulitzer for long-form journalism. Read those. Read The New Yorker. Read fiction. Read Hemingway. Just You've got to be reading all the time because being a good writer, it, it starts with being a voracious reader. Um, write for free read good writing. Number three, and this, this actually goes back to what Maddie was talking about, go to a lot of networking events. Go to all of them. Panel discussions, happy hours, talk to people, make connections. If, you, if there's an editor or a writer out there that you admire, um, reach out to them. Ask to buy them a cup of coffee and to ask them for advice. Try to make that connection. Um, it helps if you've actually read their stuff and you really there's a reason that you are reaching out to them. Not So like if everyone in this room emailed me tomorrow and asked me to have coffee with them, I couldn't do it, right? I couldn't have coffee with everybody. So find somebody that you have some sort of connection with, that you, you really enjoy their writing style or they focus on an issue set that you are passionate about and you know something about or... Um, or you, you have some, you know, it could be like we went to the same high school or something. But do some research and find people that you think, that you, that you admire and that you think maybe could be helpful. And then ask for their help. Ask for their advice. Uh, you know, see if they'll, be, if, they'll, if they'll be willing to be a resource to you. I found when I was starting out that I was amazed by how willing people were to answer those emails and to sit down with me and have a cup of coffee and talk about their career. It's actually very flattering to be approached by somebody. Um, it says, I, I admire you, and I, I respect your opinion, and I want, I want your help. So don't be afraid to do that. But it really starts with go, going to all the events and uh, sticking around during the drinking portions of those events if you're, if you're able to do that. Um, because that's when connections are made, and those connections are so incredibly valuable. It's obviously not the case that what you know doesn't matter. What you know matters a lot, but who you know, who you know will make the difference, I think, in your career. Um, just some, some very uh, specific, concrete advice for when you're pitching, because, uh, because now I'm in a position of being on the editor in the editor's chair instead of being the person trying to get some freelance hits. Um, your pitches should go to the actual editor's inbox if possible. Figure out who the editor is and send it to their email address if you possibly can. It should be short, 200 words or less. It should briefly introduce yourself. It should not just give a topic, like I want to write about capital gains taxes. That's not good enough. You have to give an angle on that topic. I want to use this thing that's in the news to make this point about this topic. Very, very um, drill down a lot more than you maybe initially are going to want to, because the, the problem you're going to run into is that a lot of people know about capital gains taxes, and most of them probably have been doing this longer than you. So you've got to have really thought this through and done your research more than, more than they have if you're, if you're going to want to try to stand out from the crowd. Um, put that pitch in the body of an email. Be, be, be brief. Be respectful. Be humble. Uh, and just know that you're going to get rejected a lot and be okay with that. Uh, it helps. It always helps if you've met the editor um, beforehand. But cold pitches are where a lot of people start too. And I got my job at Reason because I cold pitched my current boss, Catherine Mangu Ward, uh, on something I wanted to write for Reason. She immediately wrote back and rejected me and said, "We don't need you to write that because we have people on staff who are already covering that topic. Just fine. Thank you very much." Uh, but then she waited a day or two and wrote back to me and said, "But you know, we are thinking about hiring a deputy managing editor. Would you be interested in a full time job?" And that's how I got to where I am. So uh, that's, my, that's my best advice for if you, if you want to get uh, a job maybe somewhere in the journalism world. That's a good place to start. Great. Well, thank you, panelists, for your advice. And we've come to the time now where we ask for your questions. Uh, I will call on you. And then please wait for the microphone to come so everyone 
can hear your question, and then please give your name and affiliation. So who would like to start us off? Yes. Hi, my name is Ross Silvestri. I'm a recent graduate and looking for opportunities in the policy or journalism world. And my question goes to both the panelists. From uh, talking to people who work in D.C. and think tanks or on the Hill, one thing that I've uh, noticed is that it's hard to get into these types of um, organizations unless you've had an internship or, or have previously worked there. So how can you get into like think tanks or like journalism if you don't have any previous connections with these organizations? Do an internship with them. It's okay to do it if you've already graduated. People are doing it in law school, graduate school, recent grads. I mean, my intern right now recently graduated. Um, I think that's a great way to get started. It's not the only way, though, obviously. Yeah. And it, journalism is sort of its own beast in many ways. Um, but a thing that matters a lot in the journalism world is that you have sort of a brand of your own. So um, when I was writing op-eds, I was, it was not what I was, I was not getting paid. I was doing it on my own time for free. I was writing op-eds for US News, but I was promoting the heck out of them on Twitter. And I was try, trying to find, get, get the, you know, them in front of I, the eyeballs of people I admired, writers and policy people, um, as much as I possibly could. I was trying to build up my Twitter following. And what that meant was when I pitched my boss, um, uh, I just wanted to freelance something for a reason, she, I, I, I'm assuming, she, she saw my name, she, it seemed vaguely familiar to her, she clicked on my Twitter profile, she saw that I was connected to a bunch of people that she was connected with and that, that she, she knew and she respected. She saw that I was posting links to stuff I'd written, she saw that that stuff was pretty good and pretty relevant to what Reason does. And I think that that's what made the difference, is that I had invested a lot of my own time and energy for free, you know, I was not being compensated in any way, but I was, in, I, I treated it as an investment in my future, and it paid off. I mean, the return was very good. I love my job. Well, I'm, I know that wasn't directed at me, but one thing I'll add to, so um, a lot of the panelists mentioned networking. I mean, that's really important. So if you don't want to do an internship, although I highly encourage you to do one, um, a good way is to just get your name out there so people recognize you. I mean, you have to do something to differentiate your resume from everyone else's that comes in. And if someone is like, oh, yeah, I met him at an event, if they know that you're out in the movement and you're connected with other people, they're going to be more interested in you. Well, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, right? You're here. You know, so, like, where's Katie? I met Katie on the way in. She runs the internship and student programs here somewhere. So... Get her card. Email her afterwards with your resume. You know, that's the kind of stuff that you have, the, the opportunities you have to be looking for. And you've already identified them, so you're halfway there. Who is our next question? How about over here? Hello. My name is Michael, and I'm interning at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research through the Koch Fellow Program. My question, I think, is better directed towards Slater, though. Please feel free to answer. Um, in networking with people who are around your own age and around your own level of experience, it comes quite naturally and quite easy. Though, when you're dealing with people who are years ahead of you, who are far more senior than you, how would you advise networking with them, competing with them? Let's say I'm trying to get into a more uh, like literary journal like the New Criterion, let's say. And in that journal, most people who are contributing are far more senior, who have been around for years. And um, say my articles would be competing with theirs. And if I were to contact them, I'd be competing. I'd be talking to people who are more experienced than me and who are far ahead of me. How would you suggest going about that from somebody in my position? I mean, take take a chance and do it. Be. Um be humble about it and be respectful of their time. You're not the top priority. You're probably nowhere near the top priority on their plate in any given day. But email them, be nice, be brief, and say, this is the situation I'm in. And I would love, whatever, I, I think I maybe missed what it is that you would want to, is it like I want I would love to have you look at my paper or I would love to know how you got to where you are. You know, would you have time for a 10-minute phone call just so I could pick your brain? Wh whatever it is, like make the ask, do it. 
again, be brief and be respectful. Those, those are like, and be humble. Those are very important things, but also be a little bold and you got to make the ask. Are you, I, over and over again, am blown away. And I'm always surprised, even though I keep learning this lesson over and over again, that like 99% of the time you'll, you'll be afraid to ask for something that you want. And as soon as you ask for it, you'll realize how easy it was. Well, how easy was, was it to get that thing? I think if there's any, I think there's three common themes in listening to my colleagues up here. Uh, for all the advice that we've given here today, if I were to sum it up, I'd say it's this. One, be authentic. Two, be curious. Three, just hustle. And I mean, it really just boils down to that. Now, you're asking us, like, what does that mean? Um, you know, I was, uh, I was doing a TV hit once with Norm Ornstein, who, of course, is a great political commentator, writer. And we're sitting, uh, waiting to go on this show, and the TVs are up. They're doing, they've got a block up before us, and they're, it's, uh, it's promoing a Jimmy Fallon thing. No, I'm not sorry, Jimmy Fallon. Who, who's, like, the guy who just, Stuart? Is that who it is? Don Colbert, Stewart, who's Stewart? Which one's that? John Stewart. Yeah, so like one of the like one of the casualties of like doing this job is like you don't have to know anything about pop culture. So you know we all have our strengths and weaknesses. Um, but John Stewart, there was a promo for John Stewart's show, and uh, someone was on it uh, uh, talking about this book he just written. We're both watching this way to go, and I'm like, God, I was like, I want to write a book just so I can go on John Stewart's show. It looks like so much fun. And he turns to me and he goes. And I was like, oh, I, just, I, I don't know what I would write about. Like, I just, you know, I feel like everything's been written about. I don't know what I, w what I would possibly write. He turns to me and he goes, it doesn't matter what everyone else has written. Figure out what you want to write and just write it better. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> what great advice. I still haven't come up with that. Is, but that's, you know, that's a question you should be answering for yourself if that's what you want to do. Just do it better than everyone else, you know. And it, it seems kind of cliche, but have a 30-second elevator pitch about yourself. You know, you're, you're just as worthy as someone else's attention in that room, regardless of how long they've been in that room or how many other things they've done in that room. You are just as uh, worthy of that attention. But make sure that you can communicate that in 30 seconds or less. It gives you the confidence to do that, and it makes it a lot easier for someone receiving the pitch to say yes. Hello, my name is Steven. I'm an editorial intern at townhall.com. Um, my question is for each of the panelists. Um, whether it was uh, your experience or you were interviewing someone else, what were some of the, the best and the worst interview experiences that you underwent or had to bear through and what made them that way? Like interviewing for a job? Ooh. I know. The best question, the hardest question I ever had in an interview um, was somebody asked me, and it's for the job I currently have, and they're like, okay, if you could change one thing about this organization, what would it be? And that's kind of a scary question to answer because you obviously don't want to step on anyone's toes and say like, oh, well, I would do this, and you don't want to upset anyone. Um, but at the same time, it shows a genuine interest in the organization and it shows that you have done the research on how they're performing currently. Um, so I would always have that prepared and maybe even ask the, if you're in an interview, maybe ask them what would they change because every single person would has something in their mind of what they would change about their own organization and it's just kind of a fun way to connect with the individual. That's a good question. I don't know if I've ever really reflected on interviews that went poorly. Maybe I've blot them out of my mind. Um, I think, though, so when I was interviewing for this job, a lot of jobs will go through several rounds of interviews. So I think one of the challenges when you're doing that is coming up with new content each time, because sometimes you might be interviewing with the same person, or sometimes you might be interviewing with different people, but sometimes you don't know. You know, a lot of Hill offices, you'll be brought in and you'll talk to a deputy chief, and then your second round, you'll talk to maybe the deputy chief and that chief, and then the third round, you'll talk to the boss and the deputy chief and that chief. So you can't come in and repeat yourself every time, right? So having different content or being able to pitch yourself in different ways is uh, is one way to prepare for that kind of scenario. Um, but my one of the weirdest interviews I ever had was actually for this job, and I got it, so it turned out okay. But my chief is like a real, just a real character. And my interview ended up being two hours long, where we sat and we're t we went from everywhere from like Big Ten uh, sports to TED Talks to his dog. And it was just very, very like all over the place. So I walked out of it thinking, I have no idea how that went. I really don't. I have no sense if that went well or not. I think it went okay, but I'm not sure. Uh, so being able to um, exude that kind of, I think, uh, comfortability 
with people is really important too, because ultimately that's kind of what the test was, was can I sit and, you know, pal around for two hours talking about stuff like TED Talks and everything else, um, and I could. So I think that comes back to kind of what we've all been communicating here, which is that be genuine and authentic. Be genuine and authentic about yourself um, and about your interests, and that generally, I think, prepares you, if you know nothing about the employer, which you shouldn't go into an interview not knowing nothing about the employer, but if you know nothing else, that prepares you to at least be your best authentic self in that interview. Um, I would also add, I guess it depends on where you're interviewing, because I, I was trying to think how I'd answer your question. It really depends on where you're interviewing. I mean, if you're doing anything like in the, in like the private sector, you have to study for like three to six months for all those consulting interviews or investment banking interviews. Whereas if you're doing like a, you know, a journalism um, interview or a think tank interview, like they're very, very different. And so, and this has been brought up before, um, you know, reaching out to someone in the organization in the organization, asking if you can buy them coffee or maybe talk to them for just 10 minutes, like Stephanie said, showing, you know, being very humble and respectful of their time and just trying to learn a little bit more about what that process is like. It's much better to know in advance than learning after the fact if they have like little brain teasers or something like that or if it's more, you know, you need to be comfortable talking about um, like a wide variety of topics. One of my responsibilities at Reason is to, uh, to interview our, to help hire our, our journalism interns. And um, I'll tell you that the most important quali qualification that will get you even to the interview process for us is just your raw writing skill, right? We're journalists. If you're not a really good writer, then there's not that much that we can do with you. Um, so, but once you get to the interview process, the thing that can um, dera that derails a lot of applicants is if they don't seem like they have any idea who we are. You know, Reason has a has a personality. We are a libertarian political and cultural magazine. And if they come in and it doesn't seem like they understand where we come down on issues or sort of what makes us different from other places and what we're all about, then they have no chance. That's not. That's not gonna. They're not gonna get past that interview. Um, and it's. It's, it happens surprisingly often. You know, some people who have a journalism degree and a desire to work at a magazine will see a magazine is hiring an intern and they'll apply, and they will have no, they will not, they will have no idea what we're all about, who we are. You know, they, clearly they didn't even bother to spend some time reading the website a little bit because I think it would come through pretty clearly if they had. <laughs> but so that's that com that's related to everything that's been said. But doing your homework is really important, <laughs> and I've seen that now that I'm on the hiring side. We have one in the back here. <clears throat> so my name is Joey, and I'm with Americans for Tax Reform. Hey! So, yeah. Nice to see you. Thank you. I'm working with Adam. I'm not sure if you know him. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. <laughs> He's okay so far. <laughs> but uh, my question is, so I've got my foot in the door. I'm with a great organization. I love what I do. Um, I'm doing a lot of social me social media and a lot of campaign stuff, but I really want to get into foreign policy and also intelligence. So how do I kind of make that hop if I already got my foot in the door to something so different? Because I really do like working for uh, freer markets and tax reform. I wouldn't mind having that job for the rest of my life, but I would also like to try out foreign policy and intelligence, like with a nonprofit and such. So... Well, so the cool thing about being an ATR, uh, I will speak as an alumna, maybe. I Maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. Um, so the cool thing about ATR is you have the Wednesday meetings. So you're in a room of 150 people who work on different parts of the movement, uh, foreign policy, social conservatives, a lot of business interests, uh, politicians, all in the room at one time, once a week. Um, so that is a gathering of the minds that are ripe for picking, you know, and you can identify people who are in there because they're presenting. So feel free to introduce yourself to those people. You know, that's what they're there for. Um, Cato is an, ex is an excellent example of, uh, of organizations that offer opportunities to immerse yourself in the things you're interested in. I mean, he, there's probably a, a talk here every day on something that you probably find interesting as it relates to foreign policy, and Cato's not the only one that does that. There are a number of organizations that do that. They don't only host lectures, they host happy hours, they host dinners. Um, and all of these are as easy as, it's as easy as looking up their websites, and if there's a contact, emailing them, or just checking their calendar of events. Most of these websites, most of these organizations have that readily available because they want people to come to them. They want uh, young, enthusiastic people to be engaged in seeking them out. Uh, so I, I mean, that's like a very easy answer to your question. I don't know if you guys have. 
I would add just one thing. Um, do, do you use LinkedIn? And did you, sorry, did you say you're an intern or a, a full-time? Okay. So one thing that I, what I've used LinkedIn for is um, so you get connected with the people that you work with and the people that you already know. Um, and then you find the organizations that you're interested in on LinkedIn. This works for the private sector as well as the policy sector. Probably better for the private sector because everyone's on LinkedIn there. But it works here too. Find the places you're interested in working at. Um, and then find people in your network that know people that work there. And then reach out to them and ask if they would make an introduction for you. Um, this happens every day. Almost all of my friends um, that have gotten jobs recently, they seem to be using LinkedIn and using that method in particular to find their job. Well, we have time for one more. Hi, I'm uh, Adam Khan. I work for L'Oreal, but I took a sabbatical to work on my uh, MBA at GW. Um, I just wanted to pass along one quick tip, which is I found my dream jobs. I used to work for Chanel before uh, using Twitter. I built, I made a conscious effort to, because I didn't have the patience for uh, blogging. Uh, so I took up Twitter as a way to distinguish myself from others who had like LinkedIn. And so today I have 27,000 followers, but the reason I, I got my job at Chanel was because they were looking for someone who was really good at Twitter. So, uh, you know, LinkedIn is amazing, but now everyone has LinkedIn. Not everyone, you know, is like actively uh, networking on Twitter, so maybe that's a... So I kind of wanted to, you know, Stephanie, you pointed out, by the way, I'm following a bunch of you on Twitter now. Um, <laughs> wanted to point out that, because, you know, Twitter is like you can really just at mention someone and get their attention instead of figuring out what's their email, you know, how do I get a hold of them. Uh, it's To me, this was how I found, uh, like I said, this, this has worked repeatedly for me. If I wanted to get someone's attention, I would just add mention them. Especially now that I have 27,000 followers, it's much easier to get someone's attention. Mm -hmm. But quick question, what do you think of Twitter? How do, you, how do you think that fits in as we go forward, especially now that Google and Twitter has this relationship where they're indexing tweets and putting it in Google search results? Twitter is like a, an alarmingly large percentage of what I do with my entire life. Hmm. Um, I get almost all my news there from Twitter because I've I've carefully, you know, followed the people who are producing the content that I want to get, and and that way and it's I'm able to filter out all the stuff I don't care about or that isn't valuable to me, and get the stuff that is valuable to me, um, and I use it for networking purposes and a, a lot. When I was um, more in your shoes and I was, but even still, I go to events like this, and um, if I see somebody speak, I I might at message them afterwards on Twitter and say thanks, I really enjoyed. Your presentation. Thanks for coming. I mean, that it's it's as simple as that. I can't, I cannot tell you if you're in this field and you're not on Twitter and and at least consuming through Twitter, but hopefully starting to also um, use it for use it, you know, produce some content yourself. I feel like you're really leaving money on the table because I it's been incredibly valuable to me. But be careful what yeah. you tweet because it's always out there. <laughs> and I forget if one of if the Rand Paul staffer was she. Well, so uh, I know a, a recent staffer got into it. There was like a controversy because of all of her tw tweets that made people upset. Um, so it's just one thing. Just be careful about what you write. That has been maybe the most difficult transition for me, going from ATR, where I was very much an externally facing figure, to being an anonymous Hill aide. I'm not allowed to tweet as much. <laughs> it's been very difficult for me to pull back on that habit. Uh, but yeah, I love Twitter still. I consume on it every single day. I'm kind of an anomaly in that I'm not in the Twitter field. I have tweeted once. <laughs> um, but I always try to tweet more, and I just never do it. So don't be like me. Be like these guys. <laughs> but your target audience is My target audience is like old people. Well, thanks for coming today. Uh, let's thank our panelists for their time.